Nigerian pastor Sunday Adelaja once said, Time has only one Lord, God. The fact is, there isn't one person in this room today who could honestly say 10 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago, depending on your age, that your life today is exactly like you thought it would be back then. Right? That decades ago, you knew your life would play out exactly the way it has. Now, I don't believe one of us could say that. Why? Because life never goes exactly like we think it will or plan for it to. Right? There are too many variables, too many unknowns, too many unforeseeable events and circumstances that we're not in control of, as we've seen in this past week, that affect our lives in ways we could never predict. Right? The fact is, we don't always get what we want, while at times getting precisely what we do not want. And of course, that shapes our lives. And yet, as unpredictable, seemingly unstable, and ever-changing as life may be, listen, there is someone who is over all of it. Someone who is, in fact, immutable, unchanging, and perfectly in control of all of it at all times. And of course, that is the one true God about whom the Apostle Paul said, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. First Timothy six fifteen and 16. Eternal dominion, that means eternal sovereignty, eternal control. In other words, not only uh, is God in control, He always has been and He always will be. Which means it's not a matter of whether or not God accomplishes His will in this world or in the lives of those who belong to Him. It is a matter of timing. Okay, it's, a, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Everything that He does, He does in His Timing, not ours. And so when Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Think of it this way. Long before God ever created all of this or all of us, he had a plan to create all of this and all of us. And not only did he know he was going to create you and everyone else before any of this was here, he also knew every single decision that every one of us would ever make long before any of this was here. Every decision, every, every good one, every bad one, and every one in between. And so when he created his master plan for this world and for your life before any of us existed, he factored into that plan every single one of those decisions you would ever make long before you ever made even one of them. And by the way, every single decision everyone else would ever make that would affect your life as well before you were ever here. Which is how Paul was able to say that God works all things, not just the good things or the bad things or the big things or the little things, but all things together for good for those who love God. Because listen, God's plan for your life, God's plan for your life has every choice, every decision, every mistake, every triumph, every relationship, Every illness, every circumstance, and every situation you will ever face already factored into the outcome. And the best part of that is, he's working all of that together for your good. 
doesn't mean it will all be easy or enjoyable or even understandable. Listen, sometimes we simply cannot understand why or when God does what He does, but we can absolutely trust in the fact that He is in control and He's working all of it together in the end, ultimately, for our good. And so in the end, it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when God is going to accomplish His will in our lives. It's a matter of when. And I would argue that every day, even uh, in the most difficult days, He's doing just that. He's accomplishing His will, His perfect timing, working all of it together ultimately for your good, which we have an amazing example of, by the way, in our story today, as we begin a new sermon series working our way through 1 Samuel, where we find not only God's perfect will being worked out in the lives of the people in the story. But we see it all happening in God's perfect timing, even though in the moment, uh, what he was doing or seemingly not doing didn't seem to make any sense at all to the people involved, as we'll see, which I uh, I think that's something that we deal with today so often in our own lives. So let's turn there together to 1 Samuel and see if we can gain some perspective on the fact that even when we don't see God working in our lives, listen, He is working. He is always working, and He's always working for our good. Just a little background on the book as you turn there in uh, in its original form. First and Second Samuel were actually one book in the ancient Hebrew manuscripts. They were not divided into two separate books until the Old Testament was later translated into the Greek. And it's a story that begins in the 11th century B.C. where the book of Judges leaves off. So Samuel picks the story up where Judges ends. And in the first chapter, which we're covering today, we learn about the providential birth of Samuel himself, Israel's last judge. First Samuel, we'll begin with the first eight verses. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, uh, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So, in the beginning of the story, we're introduced to a man named Elkanah, whose genealogy uh, listed in verse 1 to four generations. That's typically an indication of his prominent standing in society and, and whose family line shows that he was actually a Levite, according to First Chronicles six sixteen through 30, although he's referred to here as an Ephrathite, but that's because his family lived in a Levitical city within the boundaries of Ephraim, uh, not because he was of the tribe of Ephraim, right? And that's confirmed in Joshua 24.33, which describes the Levites as living in the hill country of Ephraim. And and this Levite had two wives. Hannah uh, was almost certainly his first wife, since she's named first in the story, which was typical for ancient Hebrew writing. 
and which would also explain why he took a second wife to begin with, Peninnah, because Hannah, his first wife, was barren. Uh, It was a a major problem to have the lack of an heir in the ancient Near East, as it was in many other societies. And so taking a second wife was one way to try to solve the problem, uh, which, as a side note, was never God's design. By the way, the Bible never puts polygamy in a favorable light. Strife and conflict always characterized polygamous families in the Bible. Nonetheless, it was practiced, at least in part, to provide an heir for the family, which we see in Genesis 16:2, as was a leveret marriage, which we just recently studied together in the book of Ruth. So I won't go through that again. And yet being childless in the ancient Near East was not only a problem for the husband, it was a major problem for the wife as well, because husbands were essential at the time for a woman's survival, but it was children who brought the wives honor. Okay, and so without children, Hannah continually, in that society, she continually felt shame, embarrassment, unfulfillment, and ultimately hopelessness, as we'll see, as would any wife in her predicament at that time in that culture. And so here's this woman who God clearly has a plan for her life, a plan for good, by the way, as we'll see, and yet she's unable to have children. And as profoundly uh, troubling as that was for women at the time, it's even worse because the other wife, a woman clearly of bad character, taunts Hannah continually for not being able to have children. And to make it even worse, every year when the entire family makes the trip to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was, according to Joshua 18.1, to worship, After making his sacrifices, Elkanah would dole out the portions of food to the members of the family. And if you just read it at a cursory glance, it looks like he gives Hannah more than he gives to the others. But actually, he's just giving her one extra portion because each parent would be given a portion for themselves and one portion for each child. Meaning every year, Peninnah is given a ton of portions of food based on how many children she had while Hannah would only have one portion for herself. And so Elkanah, feeling bad for her, would give her an extra portion, which even though it was clearly meant by him to be a kind gesture, listen, that had to be for Hannah a stinging reminder, and indeed it was, of the fact that she was childless. And on top of all that, just to pour salt in the wound, this bad-natured second wife is, of course, blessed with a pile of her own sons and daughters. It's no wonder Hannah reacts the way that she does. She weeps. She refuses to eat. And as we'll see in the next part of the story, she's deeply distressed and believes that God has forgotten her. So obviously she must be under attack from the enemy, right? She's a God-fearing woman who faithfully serves her family and her God. She's the first wife who is deeply loved and favored by her husband. The only reasonable explanation for why Hannah, this God-fearing, faithful, and favored wife, remains childless while her unrighteous, unkind counterpart is blessed with many children, it must be that the enemy is keeping her from getting what she wants and what she needs, which is exactly how we so often react in our lives when we're not getting what we want or, listen, even what we need, especially those deeply important things in our lives that really do matter. And we've been faithful to God and to those around us, and yet it never seems to work out for us while those around us, even those who maybe aren't living for God, seem to have all that they need. 
right? It, it, it has to be the enemy at work against us, which is certainly the way it would seem here for Hannah, except for the fact that verse 5 clearly explains the reason Hannah wasn't getting what she wanted or needed. It's because the Lord had closed her womb. Wait, what? The Lord closed her womb. Why, why would he do that? Why would he deny such a wonderful, God-fearing, faithful person the very thing she needed and desired? Well, it wasn't because God didn't love Hannah. It wasn't because he had no plan for her life. It wasn't because his plan for her was bad. On the contrary, God had a wonderful plan for her life, as we'll see. Okay, it wasn't a matter of if God would bless Hannah with what she wanted and needed. No, it was only a matter of when. You see, Hannah's timing wasn't God's timing. And even though she couldn't possibly understand that at the time, and even though the wait was deeply painful for her, listen, when it's not God's timing, you can't make it happen. Okay? You can try. Abraham and Sarah are prime examples of that, when instead of trusting God for an heir, Abraham, per his wife's suggestion, tries to make God's plan for his life unfold in his own timing. And if you're familiar with the story, you know how it turned out. Abraham got another woman, his Egyptian servant, pregnant in order to carry out the family line. And as a result, Ishmael was born, who to this day is considered, including in the the Quran, considered to be a patriarch of Islam. A man who the angel of the Lord described would be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen, Genesis 16, 12. Okay? Abraham's attempt to make God's plan unfold in his life in his own timing was a disaster, not only for him, but for this world, which is precisely what we can expect in our own lives when we try to circumvent God's perfect timing. Yes, there's a plan for your life. Yes, it's a good plan. You may even know exactly what you need in order for the next part of God's plan to be realized in your life. Maybe He's revealed that to you already. That's wonderful. But you can't make it happen on your own. You can try all you want to, and you can make a royal mess of your own life and the lives of those around you in the process. Because listen, the only way God's perfect plan will ever come to its full realization in your life is in God's perfect timing. Which means sometimes you have to wait, even when it doesn't feel right even when it doesn't seem just, even when those around you are getting ahead in their lives and you're not, even when you don't understand what's going on or not going on, when it makes absolutely no sense to you. Listen, if it's not God's perfect timing, then like it or not, you have to wait on Him because you cannot make it happen on your own. And look, as hard as that may be to accept, there's really good news in the waiting because there's great purpose in everything that God does and doesn't do. You see, nothing, nothing that He does in your life is ever pointless, including those times when all you can do is continue to be faithful, continue to pray, continue to honor Him and those around you, and yes, even wait. Why? Because there's great purpose even in the waiting, as we're going to see in Hannah's life. There was a specific reason why God wasn't giving Hannah a child for many years after she married Elkanah, while his second wife was having many children and mocking her for it. 
It didn't seem just to Hannah. It didn't make any sense at all, and it was deeply hurtful. But God had a great purpose even in her waiting. And I'm telling you, God has a great purpose in your waiting as well. So don't despise the waiting. Most importantly, don't miss what God wants to do in you while you're waiting because it's all a part of the process. It's all, listen, it's all a part of His perfect plan for your life, waiting on His perfect timing as well. I read this quote from an unknown author this week. It says, God has already prepared the way. He's just preparing you. Let's keep reading, verses 9 through 20. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So Hannah, in her hurt, and brokenness and lack of understanding about why God hasn't given her a son yet does what every single one of us should do in our own hurt and brokenness and lack of understanding. She goes to God in prayer. And in that prayer, she makes a vow to God that if he gives her a son, she vows that no razor shall touch his head. That was the Nazarite vow, the same vow the angel of the Lord prescribed for Samson in Judges 13.5 and is further described in detail in Numbers 6. The word Nazarite, by the way, Nazir, in the ancient Hebrew means to separate or to consecrate. It was the, it was the ultimate way to dedicate your life to God in ancient Semitic culture, and it carried with it strict observances of certain prohibitions, abstaining from uh, anything related to grapes or alcohol, avoiding dead people even within your own family members, and refraining from cutting one's own hair as an outward sign of the inward vow. And although number six uh, tells us that the Nazarite vow was a temporary vow, Samson and Samuel were lifelong devotees. So you, you, you understand uh, this was no small commitment that Hannah was making here. She was saying to the Lord, if you give me a son, I will literally give him back to you. He will be a Nazarite in the service of the priest, the temple, and of you, God, all of his days. And according to Leviticus 27, 1 through 8, a child as young as a month old could be vowed to the Lord to be raised to work in the temple. This, uh, this is a whole new level of commitment to God on Hannah's part, to be willing to give up your own son 
so that God's plan could be realized in her life and, of course, in her son's life. It is staggering to think about the lengths she was willing to go in order to see God's perfect will fulfilled in her life and the life that would come out of her. And in the process, because she was praying silently, of course, but passionately, Eli the priest thinks she's drunk. And I'm not sure what that says about the people he usually dealt with, but she explains to him her deep desire for God to answer her prayer. And so Eli, representing the voice of God, says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And what is so beautiful about what happens next is the contrast between the Hannah who, distraught, confused, and un, uh, unwilling to even eat, went to pray. That contrast from that Hannah to the Hannah who, after spending time with God, returns to the family full of joy and assurance that her prayer is going to be answered. Listen, even though outwardly her circumstances at this point had not changed, she was resolute full of faith that God would provide just what she needed and desired before she ever got pregnant, okay? The drastic change in her disposition is powerful evidence that Hannah finally had the faith she needed to receive the promise, which we know throughout Scripture is the case, including Hebrews 6.12, that faith is a key ingredient to God's Word being fulfilled in our lives. By the way, it didn't happen right away. There was still a period of waiting, but Hannah had changed because for the first time she understood that when it is God's timing, you can't stop it from happening. Okay, God's plan for this world is going to be fulfilled no matter what. And remember, even when we make bad decisions, He's already factored every one of those decisions into that plan before He ever created this world. Psalm, Listen, Psalm 139, it's my favorite psalm in all of Scripture. Verse 16 says, In your book were written every one of them, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, before you ever existed. Every one of your days was written in his book. Every single one of your days. Every choice, every decision, every mistake, every triumph, Every relationship, every illness, every circumstance, situation, everything you will ever face in this life has been factored into God's outcome for your life. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So why wait? Why does God then wait for His plan to unfold in your life? He waits because we're not always ready for what He's planned for us. That's why we have to wait, because there's great purpose in the waiting. That's when we learn. That's when we grow. That's when we mature and change. And as we'll see in the last part of this chapter, that's usually when His will for the next part of His plan for our lives is revealed. So look, God has a plan for your life. And when you belong to Him, that plan is revealed to you, and then you can take it to the bank that that plan is going to be fulfilled in your life. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, which means all that's left is the timing, which is then the next step, the next chapter of that plan that's going to happen. How, how long do I have to wait then? That's, that's all that's left. And that's precisely where you come into the equation. You see, God made the plan long before He made you. And again, He factored all of your choices into that plan, but you still have to make those choices before that plan can progress. Okay? Hannah... God had a plan for Hannah's life long before Hannah was ever born. He knew what this book was going to say before she was ever born, right? 
But Hannah still had to move from fear to faith. She had to move from hopelessness to assurance. She had to move from bitterness to joy in the Lord. And she had to move from deep distress to a deep trust. Why? Because she would need every bit of that to be able to carry out the plan that God had for the next part of her life. Because listen, if, if, if Hannah had had Samuel, while she was still fearful, hopeless, bitter, and in distress, she would have clung to that child. She never would have been able to let him go when the time came for her to give him back to God. You understand, the next part of God's plan for Hannah's life was guaranteed to happen, but not before Hannah would be able to handle it. And so the waiting was not God being distant or cruel or uncaring or waiting to see what she was going to do because he didn't know. It's quite the opposite. The waiting was God's grace and mercy and his love for Hannah in not giving her more than she could take on at the time before she was ready for it. Are you getting the picture God has a plan for your life, and that plan is going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and yet there may be a period of waiting involved. Why? Because He's not going to give you something you're not currently ready for. And so if you're waiting today for the fulfillment of something God has planned and promised for you, listen, don't fear what you cannot see. Have faith for what He's promised, for the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. Don't give in to hopelessness, but be assured that God has a plan for your life. And it's a good plan, a plan for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, Jeremiah 29.11. Don't allow the bitterness of waiting to take root in your heart. Be joyful in the Lord, who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, Ephesians 3.20. And don't allow distress to overtake you. Rather, trust in the Lord for all the promises. All the promises of God find their yes in Him, 2 Corinthians 1.20. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. You understand, your mistakes cannot wrestle one ounce of sovereignty away from God. You hear me? I don't care how bad you've messed up. Your mistakes cannot wrestle one ounce of sovereignty away from God. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So be patient in the waiting. You haven't missed it. Be patient in God's perfect timing and trust in the Lord to do exactly what He's promised you He would do. Pastor Adelaide just says, everything is subject to God's timing and everything depends on it. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Then Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord." And he worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah hangs on to Samuel 
long enough to wean him. And then the second century BC apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees, that's not a biblical book, by the way, but it is an historical book. In chapter 7, verse 27, it actually says that Samuel was three years old when Hannah weaned him, which would make sense because weaning happened much later in antiquity when they didn't have specially prepared foods for a baby's digestive system like we have today. And so she explains to her husband that once she's weaned Samuel, she will take him up to the temple, to which Elkanah, her husband, replies, do what seems best to you, wait until you've weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. Interestingly, I was reading in the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, also in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, and also in the Syriac version, that's the ancient Aramaic version of the Old Testament, all of those quote Elkanah here as saying, may the Lord enable you to fulfill your vow, instead of may the Lord establish his word. Which makes sense, since Hannah is the one who made the vow to begin with, and yet her vow is very much based on God's will, God's plan for her life and for Samuel's life, as we'll see. And so I think actually both of these versions are equally valid, even though they read slightly differently. Either way, Hannah takes her little boy, the one she so desperately longed for, the one she's prayed for, begged God for, the one she's waited patiently for, the one she's suffered for. She takes him to the temple to the priest and leaves him there. Now, I know, I know she said that's what she would do, but honestly, how in the world? How could you do that? I mean, we know that Hannah said she would, but when the time came, how do you actually hand your own child over and walk away? It's because in the waiting, in waiting for God's plan to unfold for her life, Hannah grew closer to God than she had ever been before. And in that closeness, God's will for that child actually became Hannah's will for that child. Okay, when you submit to God's timing, His will becomes yours. As we continue to study this book together over the coming months, the, the world changing plan for Samuel's life becomes clear as God uses him in the most profound ways and to great effect in bringing about God's plan for this world and indeed for you and me. And yet if it wasn't for Hannah dedicating him and giving him back to God, we wouldn't have the book of Samuel. We wouldn't have his ministry, his testimony, or his legacy, which has been pointing people to Christ and his gospel for thousands of years. You see, Hannah had to get to the point where God's will for Samuel became her will for Samuel even before she ever had him. Otherwise, again, she never would have done what needed to be done in order for Samuel to become all that God planned for him to become. That's why it's so important that we submit our lives not only to God's perfect plan, but to his perfect timing as well, because life is about far more than just the big moments. You understand? Life is about far more. They're just the big moments, the, the notable highlights, the great wins, the, the wonderful achievements. I'm thankful for those. But you understand, the vast majority of our lives is spent in all the days between the highlights, between the big notable moments, right? The, the journey that you are on in between the highlights is as much or more God's plan for your life as the highlights themselves, because it is in the journey, as painful as it may be at times, as hard as it may be to wait, it is in the journey that he is making us more and more and more like Jesus. 
Okay, the highlights are simply the result of all the days we spent walking with him in between those highlights. That's why Hannah needed to experience grief and exercise patience and struggle through misunderstanding because it was in those very difficult days that God was preparing her and shaping her until his will became her will. God used the difficulty of a closed womb to accomplish something profound in Hannah's life and to further his entire plan of salvation for this world. And he did it all through her. But it had to happen in his perfect timing, which is the very same way he works in our lives today. So don't despise the waiting. In fact, embrace it because it is in the days between the highlights, the hard days, the mundane the forgettable, the average days in between the highlights, that's when the greatest change in growth is actually occurring in your life. If, if you're paying any attention to it, at least, and seeking after God, even when things aren't happening when you want them to, those are the days when you are actually becoming more and more and more like Jesus as His will becomes yours. There's a great quote by another unknown author that says, those who leave everything in God's hand will eventually see God's hand in everything. Okay, look, God has a plan for your life. He does, and it is a good plan. And if you're a believer and follower of Christ, it's not a matter of if. Uh, it's not a matter of if that plan will, will come to fulfillment. It's not. It's a matter of when. And in fact, it's happening right now. It's happening in the days when you're struggling. It's happening in the days when it feels like nothing is happening. It's happening in the days when you don't understand why you have to wait for what's next because every single one of those days are just as much a part of His good plan for your life as the ones you're still waiting for. So don't despise the waiting and don't lose hope. Listen, even if you've messed things up, even if you've made bad choices, don't lose hope in God's plan for your life because that plan already has every choice, every decision, every mistake, every triumph, every relationship, every illness, every circumstance, every single decision and situation you will ever face in your life, it is all factored into the outcome of your life. Why? So that all of that can work together for your good. Doesn't mean it will all be easy or enjoyable or even understandable, okay? In these past couple of weeks, I'll just tell you, a number of things have happened that I don't understand at all. Sometimes you simply cannot understand why or when God does what He does, but you can absolutely trust in the fact that He is in control and He's working all of it together, all of it together in His perfect timing for your good. Let's pray.